Hi guys and welcome back to our Women in Technology speaker series. Today I'm really really excited to be interviewing Regina Morin, International CEO and Non-Executive Director of National Grid, Britain's Electricity System Operator. Regina has forged a highly successful career in technology, having previously held global leadership roles at both the Vodafone and Fujitsu. Regina has had yet yeah, a fascinating career, so I really look forward to hearing more. And yeah, so if you want to start, Regina, just by introducing yourself to our listeners, maybe giving a little background overview, that would be great. Thanks, Molly. Well, delighted and thanks so much for, for asking me. Um, I feel humbled uh, with that description of myself there. Um, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, covered a bit of it, but I, I started uh, out uh, doing electronic engineering. I went to CIT and WIT, so I went the IoT route. Um, and then I got a job pretty soon after that, um, a very technical job. Um, and then kind of I took a turn into management uh, when I was about 27 um, even though it was technical management so I started moving a little bit away from pure pure technical um, did an MBA uh, in 2000 which was a bit of a game changer for me actually um, I, I wanted to lead an organization but I needed to understand more about finance and marketing and you know the other disciplines so that led me actually to becoming CEO of, of Fujitsu in Ireland um, I went on then to become CEO uh, of Jitsu UK in Ireland and then I did a, a European role and I moved to Vodafone uh, almost three years ago now and then most recently I was very excited and honoured uh, to join the board of the National Grid Systems Operator. I had been on the board of Airgrid uh, about five years ago which was a great honour as well um, and it's it's quite a technical role and it's, it's really interesting to be part of the energy sector so I guess I've kind of been in the technology sector, the telecommunications sector. I started life in the manufacturing sector and now um, I'm kind of in the energy sector. So certainly um, engineering can take you to lots of interesting places. Yeah, um, you've covered a wide variety. A wide variety. So there's 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 no limits, <laughs> I think, <laughs> is the, is if you have a, an engineering qualification. That makes, yeah, that makes for an exciting career though. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to cover, but if we just take it back then to, obviously I'm studying engineering myself, so we'll be interested in it, but a lot of our listeners, of course, are undergrads, so we'd love to hear a bit about your university experience, like even this is the Women in Tech series, so even specifically kind of how you found maybe being a female studying STEM at university, um, anything that stood out to you in your university years? Yeah, well, I'm a lot older than most people listening. Um, when I decided to do electronic engineering, it was a bit of a shock to everybody, including the, the teachers in my school um, family and so forth, because it was it was quite a, a new um, qualification at the time, electronic engineering, particularly microprocessors. Um, a, a guy came from Waterford uh, to a careers talk, actually, to our school. Now, I went to an all-girls secondary school. We didn't do physics or honours maths. So I kind of felt, well, maybe I was kind of excluded. And he said, no, I said, if you start and go to an IoT, you know, you can lead uh, to the full qualification without having those two. But I did find really honestly, Molly, when I went to college first, um, obviously uh, a lot of males in the class, they'd all done physics and honours maths. And I felt I was very far behind. So I had to work extremely hard at the start to catch up. It was also a bit of a culture shock because obviously if you've gone to an all-girls school and you end up uh, in an engineering 
engineering uh, class, uh, as many people might have experienced, you know, um, it is a bit of a culture shock. So I had to kind of get over that. Now, I, I was very interested in sport um, all forms of sport, um, a bit of a tomboy, I guess. So that was a help in terms of being able to break into conversations about who won <laughs> what match at the weekend. Um, so it was a bit of an icebreaker. But I did find um, the first, you know, the first six months in particular hard going. And then after that, I just, I just loved it. I loved the the challenge. I loved, I loved the diversity in the class actually, um, and the different characters, um, and I loved the course. You know, so I think you know, for people that are undergraduates that might be struggling a little bit at the start, you know, my advice would be to kind of stick with it. It does get better, um, yeah. and I've never looked back. And, and and it's been an amazing journey, and it it wouldn't have been possible without sticking with engineering. Okay, yeah, there's some very positive words. I, I'd have to agree with most of them, though, just the getting on with it. It's definitely a shock at the start, but once you kind of brush past that, you get, it's your new normal. Like, But, um, so you went into a technical role then after engineering, and at what point did you decide, you said you did an MBA in 2000, so kind of what was the driving force behind that? Um, would you have any advice even for someone who might be in a technical degree now, but hoping to more branch into the intersection of business and tech um, do you think an MBA is something you'd recommend? Yeah well I suppose the driving force for me was I guess my lack of understanding of you know financial marketing the other disciplines yeah um, I did a couple of intros I, I did distance learning with Harriet Watt and I did a certificate in organizational behavior and a certificate in finance because uh, I needed to matriculate um, but actually it was good because it gave me great grounding in finance going into the MBA. But I wanted to lead a company and I think I needed to understand, you know, all of the different parts of the company to be able to, to lead. So that was my driving force. Um, I reckon, you know, what helped me a lot though, and I was thinking about this uh, in terms of the question, was having, at that stage, I had led people. You know, I'd been a manager myself, I'd led people. I had experience working. And I think I got a lot out of the MBA because of that. I, I would recommend anyone do an MBA. Not so sure it's something that, for me personally, and this is just an opinion, that I would do immediately after an undergraduate mm -hmm. course. I think, you know, going out into the working world, as it were, and experiencing working in teams and the human dimension to work, actually, as opposed to the technical dimension, uh, is great when then you go in and you study things like motivation theories or you know, marketing plans, mm. you've got a, you've got a kind of a concept of what all that actually is in the real world, which I found very helpful. Okay, so you'd, re yeah, so it's interesting here, you'd recommend kind of gaining a bit of professional experience and then potentially going back. When you went into your first technical role after university, did you find that you actually used the technical skills you'd learned at college or, you know, is it, I, I, like everyone does say, you know, you learn a problem solving mindset, which I'm sure is applicable in most professions but did you use the technical skills we always wonder yeah, that if I, you're doing anything worthwhile it's, it's actually it's, you know it's interesting actually Molly. I, I actually did now it, my first job was in a company down in Cork and I had to set up uh, test processes and a whole test line and, and test machinery and you know I think you needed to understand yeah to be able cool. to do that um, and you know to, to be really honest and then um, my second job was working, it was like a dream job, working on these supercomputers, very large mainframes, uh, testing and debugging those. And you needed quite an in-depth knowledge um, of, of technical 
um, problem solving, but but at a kind of a very they were both very technical jobs, and I think he did use that. But actually, reflecting um, even today, when I'm in a situation with a customer, and they're outlining, you know, their their need to transform their maybe their business digitally, the fact that you actually understand the fundamentals of of you know computing, you know, technology is is a huge help to be able to drive that conversation forward and, and even lead those conversations. So even today, I would say, even though, you know, I don't do any really hands-on, you know, testing, fixing, you know, technical debugging, mm. most businesses, I mean, there's a huge overlap now between all sectors and technology because everyone's trying to digitalize their business. Optimizing. And those skills are yeah. very relevant. Yeah. Um, so you've definitely covered a lot of different roles um probably worked on many different projects is there anything it's a hard question is there any job or project that stood out to you as the highlight to date or is that too tricky <laughs> yeah actually the, 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 there's probably two um that i can think of one is when i worked on the mainframe computers the supercomputers i specialized in floating point units and they were really really tricky and the thing about any problem is you have to make it deterministic in order to solve it. So you had to come up with a killer floating point instruction in order to recreate the problem. And I, it used to be such a kick when you'd send it out and you'd maybe find you know, some problem. Like it, these were 48 layer glass ceramic boards. So you had to use scopes and that to, to, to look at them obviously and to find, but when you found that problem and it went out to the production line um, and came back and you tested it and it was fixed. It was a great feeling <laughs> that you'd, you know, and you could have spent maybe two, two and a half, three weeks on this thing. So that was one um, that, and it was all, and then you knew it was fixed. Whereas human, human dimension problems can be a lot more complex. Yeah. It was fixed and you moved on to the next one. But my favorite, well, one of my favorite jobs, and I've been blessed with having loads of really good teams, was when I went to the UK and I was uh, CEO of the Fujitsu business over there. You know, I ended up, you know, meeting rear admirals and meeting very senior uh, politicians and all sorts of, I was in 10 Downing Street. So I used to pinch myself every so often kind of go like this, this is kind of, this is kind of amazing <laughs> to a relatively uh, small uh, person from Tipperary to be in the middle of all this. But I love the diversity of that job and the size of it and the complexity of it and the team that I had were amazing as well. So that was probably my favorite kind of big job but there was something very satisfying about fixing floating point units as well. <laughs> I do get that though. You see the end results straight away and you know that it's, it's done. <laughs> very satisfying. Um, another thing, sorry, I noticed from your LinkedIn was that you have been president of Engineers Ireland. Was it 2014 potentially? Yes, 2014, yeah. 2015. Yeah. Um, what was your role involved with Engineers Ireland? Do you want to just maybe tell some of the listeners the motivations behind um, Engineers Ireland? Yeah, I mean, Engineers Ireland is a fantastic organization. I think they've probably got about 22,000, 20, maybe 24,000 members now. And the idea is to, to illustrate the importance of engineering to society and, and how engineering can help us solve some of the great global challenges um, and, and raise the profile of engineering and have a voice for engineers in the country. So, you know, it's, it's been around I think at that time it was 178 years old yeah. and I think I was the third female 
uh, president in 178 years. Right. So that was kind of cool. But the year that I had was the most amazing year, uh, Molly. It was it was on, slightly unreal because I went all over the country, you know, to, to loads of different events. Uh, I visited my my original secondary school. Um, I had this big chain of office, <laughs> which the younger kids in particular thought were really like really bling, like really cool. Um, I went back to WIT. I went back to CIT. Um, I chaired the conference. I ended up in, speaking in one Great George Street, which is the Institution of Engineers in London. I delivered my presidential address there. Yeah. And it was just a whirlwind, actually. It was an extremely busy year. Um, and you're just going around. And my theme, not surprisingly, was women in engineering. So I went visiting very small children, you know, to just show them that, you know, engineering does some amazing things in the world. Um, all the way, you know, to, to, to undergraduates and postgraduates. So, and, and into, you know, into work life as well. So it was a great opportunity as a female president um, to really promote the fact that there are no barriers uh, to girls entering STEM and in particular engineering. So it was a massive opportunity and a huge honor, a huge honor to, to lead such a, you know, very prestigious organization with such a long history. Yeah, no way. Wow, that's, an extreme achievement to be asked to be the president. <laughs> Very impressive. Um, moving out to your current role, so you are currently non-executive director with National Grid, which is probably different to some of the other industries you've been involved in. But um, from an energy systems point of view, I just think it's fascinating. Kind of, it's a fascinating industry to be involved in currently. Do you think, like, what do you kind of envision for the industry? Do you think there's a need for innovation? Um, Oh, it's massive, Molly. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm, I've only been involved since August, I, I, but I was previously almost five years on the board of Airgrid. And even in that intervening time, I finished that role when I went to the UK, actually, because I had just too much on. Um, the amount of change that's happened in the intervening five years is unbelievable. And, you know, the National Grid's kind of one of their, our big ambitions is net zero, uh, which is, uh, you know, zero carbon by 2025 on the grid. Now that poses massive challenges in terms of security of supply and stability of the system because you know renewables are fantastic whether it's the huge wind farms in Scotland or the solar panels in Skegness but they're volatile compared to uh, fossil fuels so to be able to run the system run the operation is is going to require you know huge technological advances actually and that's going to you know involve lots of players in the industry. And actually it's, it impacts Ireland as well because we have an east-west interconnector, which when I was on the board of Airgrid, uh, we built and deployed that. So it connects to the electricity system in the UK. So I see energy um, and the future of renewables as, as kind of borderless. It's important for the world. Yeah. Um, and all the energy uh, systems are, are becoming interconnected anyway. So it's a huge ambition uh, for the national grid ESO, but it's also a huge ambition I know for for Airgrid and I like the really cool ad they have on the television at the moment mm. about it. but it isn't just an ad it's something that the world needs energy systems operators and energy participants to deliver on okay yeah it's definitely a really cool place to be involved and yeah I think a lot of people even in my class would be interested in kind of getting involved in it because it is such a fast-changing thing as you were talking about 
Um, well, it's really interesting, actually, just to encourage everybody that uh, in the National Grid ESO, and if you want to look at it online, uh, ESO's electricity systems operator, and that's the part that, that we work in. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most senior engineering people are female. Wow. Uh, an Irish girl called Roisin, they call Ro, and <laughs> another girl called Katie, uh, Katie O'Neill. Um, so they are the, the most senior people uh, in, in that organization. So that's really encouraging, I think, for people. Okay, amazing. Actually, on that question, one question we ask a lot of the guests in this series is, um, like again, maybe a bit tricky, but is there any advice you'd have specific kind of to a female who's hoping to break into the world of technology? Now, whether that's an undergrad kind of looking at what's next or even someone younger um, in school, just, yeah, any advice really? Yeah, I'm always, I'm always nervous about handing out advice because I'm still... I'm still learning uh, what I want to be myself, actually. Um, I, I came across the notion, and I, I looked this up actually, called Ikigai is the, is the notion of, if you can find, and it's the Japanese philosophy, and it's about um, your reason for being actually. So the, the perfect job is if you find that intersection between what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can get paid for. So it's quite practical. Um, but and that's called ikigai, which is your reason and your purpose for being. Um, in order to get there, though, and I'm still, I'm actually still on that journey myself. Um, you need to to kind of back yourself and try anything, get a foot in the door, in you know, in, in your target organization, and and kind of get get in there doing pretty much anything, and then work your way into the job that you really want within that organization. I think the other thing I'd say is to back yourself and kind of believe in yourself. Um, I think Henry Ford said, if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. <laughs> so um, I always say that to people. And then the last thing I'd say, and I think, you know, I've had ups and downs in my career. It's not a straight line. And, you know, maybe in some of the career books, that's what it looks like. You know, it's not a straight line. Um, it's a bit of a twisting road. So you have to be adaptable. You have to be able to kind of go with the flow. One door closes another door might open and keep scanning the environment to look for opportunities. And then you don't have to be 100% of what they're looking for to get mm. the job. My yeah. first job as a manager, I was a rank outsider. I still pinch myself and think, I don't know why they selected me, but it mm. got me on the road to management. My point is, if I'd have looked at it and said, I needed all of those things that they asked for and didn't go for it, I never would have got it. Yeah. So there is that just kind of backing yourself and then if you don't get that just be open scan the environment again and see what else is out there and really be adaptable okay wow some very honest words there yeah definitely going to stick with us but the last question then actually um aside from of course like technical skills that are necessary in the industry what would you kind of look for in a graduate now who's maybe a, or an undergrad who's hoping to apply to some a graduate role um, what would you look for kind of even the soft skills that you'd see in a great leader something that you think people should kind of keep in mind um with regards to yeah I mean I, I yeah I mean well the first thing I always look for is is enthusiasm and energy okay you know I know that might sound obvious but sometimes people are very nervous mm -hmm. and they just should let their energy and enthusiasm out um, the other thing that's really important, I think, in leadership is listening. 
and listening to understand and not to just respond. If you know what I mean? So listening um, when you're with people and being present and in the moment with people uh, is really important. Uh, and for people to demonstrate that, I think is, is really important. A huge one for me is integrity mm-hmm. uh, and, and building trust. And that allows you then to kind of have empathy with people and situations. Um, I remember I went on a leadership course. It's a long time ago, but I still remember you were asked two questions on the course, which I kind of still ask myself. And one of them was, how do people experience you as a leader? And the second one, which was trickier, was how do people experience themselves in your presence? Mm. And I think if people think about that, you know, when you're with people, you know, because people lead in all sorts of ways on teams, in dram socks, in, you know, this society, you know, there's all sorts of leadership. It's not just about being in an organization. And how do you leave people feeling? You know, do they feel energized and uh, motivated and, and good about themselves? You know, so I think if you can give energy to people um, in any situation, then that's one of the important traits of a leader. Okay, that's some good food for thought, I think. Um, yeah, that'll be sticking with us. But I think we'll leave it there just because don't want to take up any more of your time. You've already, I'm sure you have a very busy schedule, very good to come in on your Tuesday night. But um, yeah, no, that was some really good advice and it was really nice to hear your journey. Very inspiring, impressive career. Um, so yeah, guys, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much again, Regina, for coming on. And we will be back again in two weeks with our next speaker. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.